Blog Talk Radio. Punching left, we're punching in again. This particular episode is on libertarianism, uh, and I'm joined by again, I host, uh, David German. Good. How are you doing? You there? Yeah, doing good. Doing good. So, we want to start with a discussion of uh, Catholicism and how it relates to libertarianism. And so you kind of have to go back because Muslim has a lot of influences, and particularly from Greek philosophy. And so when we look at that, we think about that. You can't really just discuss discuss the that philosophical side of it as well. But we're also joined by Tony Pavetta. Tony, you. Can you hear me? Yes. Right, there, now, Tony? I am both on the phone and the computer. Maybe oh, I, should... I can hear you. Hang on a second. I would just... Can you guys hear me now? Yes. Yes, I can. Now, do you have another call I'd like to... Uh, I'm going to bring them in for just a second. 
All right, so this is Cliff Knox punching left, and we have a caller called in. Who am I speaking with? Uh, this is Tony Pavetta from Roanoke, Michigan. Oh, okay. So you're on. You <laughs> so you've called in on the phone, and you're on to your computer. So let's, which one do you want to stay on with? I have on my phone, so I I think right. Right. So, yeah. There we go. Okay. Okay. Good. good. Sorry. Good. So I didn't. All right. I see. I see what happened there. All right. So, so I guess we could go back and we can talk a little bit about um, some of the things that David and I have discussed in the past. That I think is relevant. Um, we, we can definitely say that a lot of a lot of the early traditions of of the church, because initially there was just the church for the most part, um, were, were heavily um, influenced by Platonic philosophy. Of course, Aristotle wasn't on the scene. Most of Aristotle's works at that time were lost to Europe, Western, and, and the Western world. And so, uh, really, uh, you kind of start to solve questions uh, because uh, you had Neoplatonists in Rome and different parts of the classical world, and they were raising a lot, they easily raised lots of questions that Christians had a hard time answering. Uh, and and Augustine happened to notice that uh, a lot of Greek philosophy actually fit well with some of the Christian doctrines that that were around. And and part of the part of the uh, mission at that time of Augustine was to where he could actually defend itself. So in a lot of ways, he he really a lot of this stuff happened as uh, a form of apologetic type of kind of argue against the Neoplatonists who were pagans and trying to to uh, fend them off in front of large crowds of people because, of course, the Christians would be asked questions that were tough to answer. And so he felt that they needed to be able to fire back and, and ask some of the same questions. Uh, any thoughts on that, David? Oh, Augustine? Yes. Um yeah, he uh, he was a um, one of the earliest uh, philosophers in the church, and he. I haven't read much of his work, but I've uh, I have read up on some of the information on on the internet presented about Augustine, and and he uh, was one of the. Um, Early church fathers that bought uh, uh, that saw Greek philosophy as um, something that could be um, placed within uh, Christianity and and the defen- logical um, defenses that uh, that you see that with developed by Greek philosophy could be used by the church, mm-hmm. right? And so. So, which is what I would just say. So, so in a lot of ways, it, when we see Augustine, what I see uh, as someone who's who studied philosophy, um, what I see is really the birth, the real birth of Christian apologetics with Augustine. Tony, uh, are you familiar with Augustine at all? Is that something well, you read up about? I've read parts of uh, Augustine. I, I do recall distinctly, in fact, I've used it before in uh, some of my Facebook posts. Uh, he's a great line about 
the difference between kingdoms and pirates. Are you familiar with that? In, in the City of God, he, he writes, um, without justice, what are kingdoms but great robber bands? What are robber bands but small kingdoms? The band itself is made up of men, is ruled by the command of a leader, and is held together by a social pact. Plunder is divided in accordance with an agreed-upon law. Um, he goes on, he says, a fitting and true response was once given to Alexander the Great by an apprehended pirate when asked by the king what he thought he was doing by infesting the sea. He replied with noble insolence, what do you think you are doing by infesting the whole world? Because I do with one puny boat, I am called a pirate. Because you do it with a great fleet, you are called an emperor. I already thought that was a pretty good line. <laughs> I, I think so. And I think that you see, I mean, that's just one, one example right there, a good one, uh, where a lot of thoughts that libertarians have regarding government and the, you know, the, the state uh, seems to spill over. And you see it coming out of ancient Catholicism, ancient the ancient church, um, and so I think I think again that's a, a fantastic example. It's all the philosophy and ideas that can come out of the Catholic Church over the years that that match up just like that. And and what's what I find most interesting is that the atheist libertarians out there are using these these lines of of logic and and so on in their discussions with non-libertarians. Uh, just the same as the you know the the Christian libertarians are, and so this this stuff did not originate from atheists; it originated uh, within the church. Um, I know David, you were talking to me earlier. You know, we were talking, you having questions about uh, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. Um, one of the things that we have to realize is that, of course, Plato was Socrates' student. And Socrates really is the father of Western knowledge. I mean, epistemology started with him. Uh, Plato was uh, he, uh, created political theory and uh, further went down the path of talking about what is knowledge, epistemology, metaphysics, and so on. Um, and then, of course, Aristotle came along, and he was very science, very methodical, very scientifically minded, very pragmatic, and the lost. Aristotle early on because when uh, Alexander shut, he, he basically um, Alexander and the Byzantine Empire and so on, they, they actually shut or the, the that empire from Alexander the Greeks and then later the Byzantines, the Byzantine Emperor under uh, the Romans uh, shut down all of that stuff and actually purged Aristotle and tried to purge Plato from uh, it was sort of an uncomfortable fact that there was a lot of, of Greek philosophy shoehorned into Christianity at the time. Um, of course, uh, you know, uh, Aristotle fled from, from Athens just like uh, for the same reasons that Socrates was put to death because uh, they were after him. And I, I'm pretty sure that, that uh, you know, he, he, he wasn't like Socrates. He was going to get out of there. Well, long story short, uh, the only reason we stopped Aristotle is because the Arabs managed to get a hold of some of his books and his works and and save them. Uh, so uh, the early church 
from the time of, of Christ on, whatever uh, philosophy was pushed into it was all Platonic, strictly Plato, or Neoplatonic, Platonic, and some of those those Greek philosophers. Um, but, I mean, obviously there's a lot of scripture, you know, there's a lot going on there for, like, the Council of Nicaea and a lot of developments in the church that did not have anything to do with with Greek philosophy. It, so you have too early. really, in my opinion, two traditions running. What's that? It was, yeah, it was very early okay, on. Then, Council of Nicaea was very early on, really before they started um, looking at Greek philosophy hard. Yeah, so you actually yeah. had two traditions in the church running side by side there for a long time, and it didn't really, they didn't really completely mesh till later. Um, so, I mean, John Augustine, you know, you, there are a lot of, of famous theologians in the church going all the way up to Aquinas, um, and, it, and I and and really, he's, in my opinion, in a lot of ways, is the not only the father of the church, uh, father of the church's theology, but but the, the, much of Western philosophy again kind of branches off from there. But so, Tony, um, what is your what is your experience as far as uh, the concept of libertarianism and the Catholic Church? What what sort of, uh, of of ideas do you see that run parallel between modern libertarian and the the Catholic Church's positions on? on war and politics and so on. I, I think the church has always taught that um, the hallmark of morality is universality, so that if um, thou shalt not steal is a good rule for me and is a good rule for you, it should be a good rule for uh, a bureaucrat in Washington, D.C. Um, I, I, I don't think a lot of churchmen have taken it necessarily to that logical conclusion, but I, I certainly have. Uh, and I just never have understood why um, it's legal or, or it's ethical for somebody with a badge to steal when it's not ethical for me to steal or, or David or, or anybody else. And um, I would also, okay. I mean, we want to go back to the beginnings of our, uh, the link between Christianity and libertarianism. I would go back to Christ. Um, teaching about render unto, un, unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God's. Because clearly right there, uh, he's saying there's a distinction that we have a separate obligation as political animals versus as, um, as religious animals. Um, our duty to God is something quite apart from our duty to the state whatever that duty to the state may be. Now, he leaves that question wide open. Um, he didn't, you know, I can't say Jesus came out and said to be an anarchist, but he's, he's apolitical. He's, he's more concerned with <laughs> our relationship with, with um, God the Father. Um, I mean, honestly, if we all lived live, live reasonably ethical lives, we, well, we don't need a government anyway because I'm an anarchist, but, you know, even if you were taking a minarchist position, if everybody led a reasonably ethical life, we wouldn't need a government. Well, I think I think that there's something to be said for that, and, and I don't disagree. I, I happen to my my interpretation of render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and render under you know render unto God what is God's. 
in, in some ways to be not only a statement about paying taxes or anything. Is I, I don't necessarily think that um, he was all he was he was really talking in many about paying taxes because you can't eat coins. You can't eat your coins. So you, you give Caesar his money. But everything yeah, else no, belongs you know, to God. I'm not even saying he was saying that. I'm not sure he was saying pay your taxes. He's saying, well, there, there are two separate questions. What is Caesar's and what is God's? I'm telling you what is God's. He left the other question open. And I I say nothing belongs to Caesar besides, you know, what belongs to any other human being, you know, a sense of fair play. Well, the coin, the coin with the image of Caesar, but you don't necessarily have to use it. You know, he he, he, he made fish, right? He, he created so so. I I don't see I don't really see. You know, a lot of people use that as a as a way to try and say that that he was advocating paying taxes. And I mean, he just doesn't uh, seem like that kind of guy to me. He, no, no, I don't think know, he, he, he he wandered around and. It, oh yeah. So so, we're, what do you think, David? What do you think about that particular line? How, how do you see that idea of render under Caesar? Under Caesar, what is Caesar's? It's first. I um, was reading something, and what he was saying about Tiberius, he was subtly mocking the idea of what Tiberius was saying. By but he was saying render unto God what belongs to God. Uh, he was saying, uh, render unto Caesar, uh, but Caesar's really owed nothing. Yeah, I agree. That's the way I read it, too. Right. I mean, a lot of people so, take that so, line and, and that, that we should pay taxes, but I don't think that's the case at all. Yeah, Jesus was being first. When you take that position that it's to pay taxes, that you end up with all sorts of problems, uh, with, with all sorts of conflicts. In the messages. So, what are you saying, David? Uh, Jesus was being uh, ambiguous. He was he was um, being quick witted, and he was fooling the because uh, the Roman um, gov- the Roman governors or government that was um, there, the Roman police basically. If they overheard what he was saying and understood what he was saying. Uh, they would have arrested him immediately, but he was being pers- he was being purposely am- ambiguous at that point when he said that line. Very cryptic. Yeah. Yep. Well, you know, the funny thing about it too is um, he, he wandered from from town to town. I mean, he had nothing on. I guess he wore some sandals. I get him barefoot and some maybe a, you know some rags he wore and uh he didn't really carry any money how are you going to render taxes to Caesar if you don't ever carry your used money especially if you're a poor Jew so that that's that's one of the things that i i see and think about especially if what if you're a poor Jew in which there were a lot especially of especially if what if you're if you're a poor Jew right which mm-hmm. there were quite a bit of them. Yeah, I agree. Uh, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Sure. Sure, they're, they're everywhere. And, uh, I mean, he was just a carpenter. 
they so, didn't make a lot so, of money. Okay, so we think about that. That's that's one area that you that you want. No, no, carpenters didn't make a lot of money. Um, another area that that I think of um, people talk uh, try to portray Jesus as being a socialist. Uh, I don't buy into that. I don't buy that, that Jesus was a socialist. I, can't, I don't know of anywhere where he says, give Caesar your money so that he can redistribute it to everybody. Okay. And, uh, and so he told people to go to, go get – he said, go give it to the poor yourself. Do it yourself. And the church in the – the church in the um, catechism says that um, – um, communism is immoral. That private property um, is right. an absolute right. Yeah, there was a time uh, any right. Catholic about communism would be excommunicated. Yep. Well, you know the the, the one of the one of the thoughts that I have here is um, I don't remember the exact scripture. But I think about uh, the parable in the scripture where it talks about the man who owned the vineyard, and, and I consider that to be, for instance, a representation of Jesus for God. And, and he, he, there was no equality of wages. I mean, he obviously he doesn't believe in equality of outcomes necessarily, for instance, or, or he does to a certain degree, but not in wages. So you just ha- kind of have to listen and read it, but. It essentially talks about how at the beginning of the day he took in some workers and agreed to pay them a certain amount of money. And towards the end of the day, within the last, say, two or three hours of the work day, some more people showed up looking for work. And he took them in and happened to agree to pay them the exact same amount of the people who he took in in the morning. And when the people who started work in the morning were complaining, he said, well, it's my vineyard. I own it. It's my property. And I can choose what and how much I give to who. And my agreement with these people over here have nothing to do with my agreement with you. It doesn't matter that you started in the morning and they're starting now. That's what my agreement with them. And and really, I mean, uh, that's back to a kind of, I think, where you think about, uh, for instance, uh, accepting Christ and going to heaven doesn't matter if you accept him the last day you're alive or if you accept him the day you're, you know, right after you're born. But, but, but at the end of the day, it also, he says, this is my property. I own this. I can do with it what I want. I think that's pretty clear. Free market principle at work right there. Yeah. Private property, private property. Uh, Jesus, God was talking about, Private property. And mutual agreement. Now, I will say that there is actually the church. Go ahead. Go ahead, Tom. No, there's, yeah, there's a mutual agreement ahead, on, uh, on on wages, so that's what uh, everybody should be happy with. These, you know, as you said, the, the people who started early in the morning agreed to that wage, and what do they care what the people who came later in the day got paid? They still agreed to that wage. Of course, that's right. And um, what do you? I mean, what do you have to say on that, David? You, you have any thoughts about that? About wages? Well, about about that parable and, and what what they were saying. Uh, I, I might have heard it. What, what parable was it? 
the that you I were don't talking about. The exact, uh, I can't I can't give you the exact scripture, but but it was about the owner of the vineyard. Oh, the owner of the vineyard. In the morning and agreed to a wage, and then brought people in later in the day, and agreed to the same wage for those people later in the day. Yeah, that's yeah. I have to agree. That's that's and, private and, property. Yeah. Yeah, and, and so so that you know you see you see things like this throughout throughout uh, a lot of the scripture. Um, one one of the things though that that strikes me is there what, there is a position, and you and I, David, have discussed this in private before uh, about the concept of distributism. Distributism. Have you ever heard of that, Tony? Oh yeah, sure. Um, distributism. G.K. Chesterton and Hilaire Bullock were the two guys. Who? Um, G.K. Chesterton, and the other yeah, guy was actually uh, yeah. Hilaire Black was the other guy, I think. Okay. If, if I remember right, it was actually uh, by the church. Yeah. The concept um, of it. And I don't know that much about it, but it seems kind of like a way to bridge the gap, supposedly, between uh, capitalism and socialism. But I don't know. I, I just, it seems kind of flaky to me. Even though I, I, I admire a lot of well, what Chesterton and Black wrote a lot of great stuff. Uh, I just, I'm not really crazy about whatever. It just seems kind of flaky. I, I, you know, it's just, they, they seem to think, for example, that people would be happier going back to their farms and being small yeoman farmers and that they were like conned into going to the cities to work for a higher wage. But I, I don't think that's the way it worked out. I think people actually lived better when they left the farms and went to the cities. I thought, you know, they thought that the life on the farm was, was too hard a life for them. And uh, the city offered opportunities, even though they were in a sense, um, cut off from the fruits of their labors because they weren't yeoman farmers any longer. They were working for somebody else and just drawing a wage. Right. Yeah. I, I the thing about uh, distributism that I, I don't, I, I, for me, I see a lot of parallels with the concept of mutualism and I'm not a fan, I'm not a fan yeah. of, of distributism. I'm not a fan of mutualism. Yeah, tell the truth, I'm not sure the difference would be. Yeah, I've heard those terms, uh, yeah, kind of uh, joined together, but yeah, right, yeah. It, well, it, so the church actually approved of it, and a lot of it was centered around the idea that uh, every person would be given their own plot of land to work. But uh, in, in the end, the, one of the reasons, of course, if you're talking about going back to the land and being like yeoman. And so, and that the church would have approved of something like that is because that those were the the glory days of the medieval time, medieval days when Europe and and most of the world really was, was primarily an agrarian. Those were agrar- agrarian it, society. It, it, um, it sounds very agrarian, right? And yeah, I, I, think I was so looking too. so so. Wait, I was looking at the uh, Wikipedia art- article for it just now, and the category it's under is anti-capital. It's under anti-capitalism category. Right. Well, it's supposed yeah. to be a uh, I, I don't think it works. 
Well, I think I think what happens anytime you try to find a middle road between free markets and private property and socialism, you end up with yeah. socialism. I agree. So, you know, it, it never stops there. It always continues to move towards because because the more you, you uh uh intervene into something, it's almost like gambling. The more you, you intervene and tweak something, the more you think you've got to intervene and tweak it. And gambling, you can't walk away from the table either. You know, the more you the more you play, or the more you lose, the more you win. Matter if you want to do it. Um, at least some people do. I I definitely think uh, if you look at, so so you look at, at from from uh, Augustine on down through through the next seven to eight hundred years. Of course, you have pseudo Dionysus. And it was it was just there's no way around it. Extremely platonic. Uh, you have guys like Boethius uh, and certain other uh, theologians that that are out there that uh, they they definitely uh, pursue a very platonic type of way of thinking. And after after Spain, they they pushed the the Muslims out of out of Spain. And they captured a lot of the libraries that were staffed by Jews and Muslims alike. They managed to capture Aristotle, recapture, reintroduce Aristotle into Western uh, education institutions. And so you started to see a huge push uh, uh, by some of the new, newer theologians, younger ones. To introduce thought ideas from Aristotle, which they they happened they called him the philosopher. Uh, they didn't even really use his name that much after a while. They just called him the philosopher. You start to see an introduction of Aristotle into the conversation, and there was a lot of pushback. And in a lot of ways, it was kind of a, an intellectual civil war within the church. And to a certain degree, I'm not sure that that civil war. Um, isn't isn't somewhat of of how we ended up with the Reformation uh, at some point? But anyway, uh, so so are you guys? What kind of uh, familiarity do you have with Aristotle, David? With Aristotle, I have um, <laughs> looked at to and to um, see. I think I read one of his books in. Just one book by Aristotle. It's short in college. Uh, Aristotle. Uh, I'm the probably. And ethics. Um, it. I think it might have been, and and it. It was a. It, I can see. I can see why a lot of people were influenced by him. And why why they influence the uh um, you have why, go ahead, David. You saying why the what? They influenced uh why influenced the um uh church um some of the church fathers later on and, and Aquinas. Okay. Tony, or do you have familiarity with Aristotle? Uh I've read po- I think Poetics, is that one of his books? And um I've certainly seen poetics, aesthetics. Po- wasn't there a book, Poetics? Poetics? 
Uh, well, he uh, he did a, a aesthetics, and he might have done poetics. That sounds right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Every one of those. Okay. Well, you you had a lot of influence on on the the church th- from from Aristotle, and and what's really funny is that a huge amount of the Aristotle that was coming to the church was coming by way of Arabic. They were reading it in Arabic. And it, it, this was being passed from uh, Islamic theologians because they were the ones they were translating Aristotle's works into Arabic. And so it was be, like uh, guys like Averroes, uh, it's a good example of, a, of an Islamic philosopher. Technically, he's Islamic. Uh, I would mean he was thought of as heretical at, at certain points, but. Um, and that's one of the reasons there was so much pushback against Aristotle from certain elements within the Catholic Church, because they they actually had a tendency to view it as Arabic teachings, not as Greek philosophy. Um, but some of the ideas that you see that uh, uh, comes in is really, really heavily introduced by Aquinas, the idea of a first cause, first mover. That's something that comes from Aristotle, and Aquinas adopts it. Um, and Aquinas is sort of the father of the idea of a just war. You guys familiar with that, the just war? Sure. Augustine discussed that, or developed that idea quite a bit, too, I think. Right. So if we think about the just war, I mean, to me, uh, it's a very libertarian concept of war if you what it says what it's about it's a very libertarian concept david are you familiar with that uh what was the concept the just war oh yeah just war yeah yes it's uh war in defense basically yeah and non-combatant okay. off that was a big development too so right, so so the first concern, you know, when you look at just war, we're talking about is the first of all, the morality of going to war. So, yeah, do we have a moral reason for actually engaging in conflict? And it, it's, like not, said, it's very, it's a very libertarian idea, David. Yes, it was um, not to endanger many human lives as necessary as possible. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was developed um, juice juice ad bellum. That's like a just entry into war. And then there was juice in bello, and then that means you know you, your actions during the war have to be just as well. Yes, right. You got away from that second uh, part in uh, post Christian in the post Christian West. Um, People seem to think that as long as there's a just cause for for war, then anything goes. That's why people don't really care about civilian casualties anymore. Right, right, and that's true. And and one of the things that we find, you know, you look at it, uh, you're looking at whether it's a just war or not. Is what will the end result be if I if I go to war? If I go to war, will 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 is that the worst possible outcome? that there's a lot of casualties on the battlefield and I'm attacking somebody or 
if I go to war, will uh, for instance, you just mentioned civilian casualties. Um, will I? Will a lot of people die who are innocents? And uh, the other question is, if I don't go to war, will a lot of innocent people die? Am I obligated to go to war in order to in order to save the civilians in my own country? Do, are they invading us? Right. Uh, and then you were talking about right conduct, or, the, or whether we should whether we should um, how we should conduct ourselves, which see that stuff in the Geneva Conventions. Uh, so for instance, um, I do believe that uh, probably Thomas Aquinas would have looked down upon dropping atomic bombs. Oh, I think Japan. so. Yeah, I think so. But, yeah, and I and I do think that he would have he would have looked down upon the bombing campaigns against Germany, um, which which were you know, devastating. I think he would have looked down on the Syria, uh, the uh, the American attack on Syria too. <laughs> We're still finding out there's no evidence for that for that chemical attack. So more than likely, yes. I think um, if you read Popeye, he talks a lot about how mass democracy. Other libertarian writers have written about how mass sector democracies have really. Um, sanitize the whole idea of waging war on civilians because in the, in the Middle Ages, uh, two kings could have a battle in, down a valley and a, and a family could have a picnic up on top of the hill, watch the two armies clash down below and be fairly secure that their lives and property would be safe. And that's that's right. And, and that's that's something that's changed. And the other thing is about it is that nowadays we do something called total war, which did not exist 150 to 200 years ago uh, prior to the French Revolution. There was no total war. If you were going right. to the king and his aristocracy, aristocrats were going to war, they paid for it out of their own pocket, off their own property. So they might levy heavier taxes and so on on their own property, but they're not going to levy it on their neighbor's property. And uh, so the king and the aristocrats were limited on how much war they could wage and what they m- would end up doing in order to wage it and where, you know, how they were going to fund it. And so war had its limitations, and, and nobody wanted to do it at all because if you went to war and you stayed at war too long, you'd end up destitute. And that's the last thing that, it, that a kingdom wanted was to have an empty treasury. So – uh, because it was basically the king's own money. That's right. And his heirs. And we're he, right? Yeah, and we're about his so, so, and and when he borrowed money, he's the one that had to make those payments. Mm-hmm. So unconditional surrender. And, and, and you, there's a limit to the amount of right. It, it, well, the unconditional surrender. You're you're exactly right. And there's a limit to um, how much a king can tax his people. What people don't realize is that um, they think that you know monarchs – every monarch was a tyrant, and I believe it was the last Austrian who was talking about Habsburg? taxation, and he said any – yeah, any, any, any uh, uh, monarch who taxes his people at 25% or higher is a tyrant. So now we have nations in which the people are being taxed at 70, 80, 90 percent, 
and even the United States were hitting you know levels of 40 and 50 percent. So in democracy and modern nations, uh, we're being taxed heavily. And a lot of the reason why we're taxed so heavily is guess what? We're constantly at war with somebody, sticking our nose in somebody's business and having to pay for it. Um, so I think I think just war theory fits quite well with with libertarianism. I think that as far as Catholicism goes, I think this is another area right here where where it, it meshes absolutely perfect with libertarian political theory. Um, and 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 to be honest, I, I for me at the time when I decided to become a Catholic and I went through RCIA and converted. Uh, just war theory was a one of the main blamed by the church was with things like this. Um, it was important to me that that to had a lot, a reasonable and moral position on these things. Um, David, were you were you born a Catholic or did you convert? I also converted um, in 2012, six years ago. Um, mm-hmm. right the year before um, Pope Benedict um, became um, went out of um, rule as pontiff and bought, brought in Francis the uh, double speaking Francis <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so how much so I can't believe positions it. yeah yeah I know it's crazy how much did um uh, your libertarianism affect your decision to become a Catholic, David? I was doing both at the same time. Well, that's interesting. So did, they, did you feel like there was some, some synergy there? Yes, yes. There's. I knew and there was some, some connection between the two, um, okay. intuitively and rationally. Right. Well, Tony, what about you? I mean, have you always been a Catholic, or was this something that you came to later in life? Yeah, no, I'm. I was born. Uh, I'm a cradle Catholic. You hear a lot. Of, hear a lot of background noise. Oh, I, I, I was a cradle Catholic. Yeah, I was born uh, baptized when I was two months old. Okay. So this is something that you've always. So, so uh, have you always? I mean, when. Libertarian. When did you did you just were you always like this or did you wake up one day and say, you know, I do believe that become a libertarian? I um I became a libertarian in college. I read a, a couple of books I thought were pretty interesting and um uh believe it or not, did you guys ever hear a book called None Dare Call It Conspiracy? <laughs> no, I, mean, I have not. A, have you a conspiracy uh a conspiracy book turned me into a libertarian. Um, this guy had, um, instead of the left-right spectrum, he had a spectrum that went from, uh, like, on, it started with total government, totalitarianism. Actually, on the left, it started with total lack of government, anarchy on the right, total government, which he called pharaohism or totalitarianism or communism. And this guy was arguing for constitutional limited government, which was which is just a little bit more government than anarchy. 
And then, you know, that book made me think, um, what is it that separates a constitutionalist from an anarchist? And the only things would be, like, the constitutionalist believes that the state should provide certain, what most people consider fundamental services, like a court system, national defense, and police services. But I, I, I remember at the time thinking, well, that's interesting, but it's still kind of arbitrary. Why can't those services also be provided by the market? And uh, so this guy, without intending to, uh, turned me into, well, a pretty hardcore libertarian. Um, I, yeah, I, I, would mm-hmm. term, I, I agree with, with uh, Hopa that uh, we should have a fully privatized social order and um, people can create their own rules on their own property and enter into agreements with other people who also own property. And um, I think that's the best way to go about uh, creating a, a just and orderly society. You know, I I think that's interesting uh, that you bring up Hoppe because that I mean obviously uh, David and I are are definitely um, Hoppe. Oh yeah, uh, I can see. You call us, David, you call us uh, the great capitalist. You could call us. What's that? What's that, Tony? I, I've seen David with the great man himself in his pictures there on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, David and I both were at that at that at that at that event, and it was it was pretty cool. Um, but but we're I guess we're both pretty pretty hardcore uh, Hoppe libertarians and get whatever you want to call us. I have a tendency often to call myself an Austro libertarian um, because. I don't really fit quite into the anarcho-capitalist mode, uh, and I—I'm not. I can't speak for David, but I can tell you that I take Hoppe's words about um, the uh, problems with democracy to heart, and I think that honestly, um, we would be better off. Under a, I mean, I'm not saying that that monarchy is the ultimate goal, but we'd be better off with a very limited, uh, old style, elodial, uh, feudal monarch monarch than we would be under our current system of voting and and uh, low uh, high time preference politicians. Um, oh, I, I so, agree. Uh, and what's really funny about that is, uh, you see, uh, for me. I started out I, I, for a long time. I took the position it wasn't a left or right thing there for a while, uh, but I've come to the conclusion that um, that really libertarians fall into two groups or three, two or three groups. And and for me, uh, I'm Catholic. Dave, I know you know David's Catholic, um, and I, and what I see is I see your your virtue signaling, uh, heavily left leaning, social justice warrior libertarians. Uh, I see your your middle of the road libertarians, many of which are just very pure brutalists, and then I see many traditional traditional libertarians, which would be a lot of us are Catholics, and and we're more to the right. We have, we take positions which, in many cases, socially are very much on the right, and of course, because we're we're uh, libertarians, we're very much on the right economically. Um, so that's that's. When David and I have these shows, we're always punching left. I mean, we we never punch right. 
Yeah. Because we we are traditional traditional Catholics, traditional libertarian. Um. But uh, David, what, I mean, would you disagree with any of that? Um. No. Uh. Yeah. Uh. I think I think you could put um. Even though he's agnostic, I think you could put um. Almost he he doesn't follow the church, but I think Hoppe is um, in some ways he um, what he believes he's 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 kind of a, a got like a Catholic approach to him. Uh, I agree. Well, I, yeah. Go ahead, Tony. Yeah, he certainly. I've read um, Democracy: The God That Failed and. Uh, he certainly speaks highly of uh, Catholic civilization. Um, throughout that book, um, it, it, do you guys ever read Bionic Mosquito, the blog? I sure, like I sure do. I sure yeah, do. I, he's like that too. He, I, I don't know if you've read him lately, but he thinks that libertarianism came closest to being realized during like the high Middle Ages uh, in Europe. Um, when the church was culturally very strong and political systems were very decentralized. I, I don't necessarily disagree, and, and one of the things that I will say is that I believe that the height of libertarian the, – the close – there's only been a couple of times when we've gotten very, very close to having virtually no government, and the first groups would be – in your older, older monarchies, pre-parliamentary, because in a lot of those societies, the king really held no to power at all over domestic, domestic issues. He, he might act as a judge occasionally, but uh, other than that, these guys, you know, barons, dukes, whatever, uh, kings, they did not act as, as domestic. They had no real control. And, and for instance, if you look at the ancient Anglo-Saxon kings, uh, they all they were was a war leader, and so when they were attacked, all the uh, landowners got together and went to the king and said, "We're being attacked," and the king would marshal the forces and they'd go fight off the enemy. And then basically the rest of the time, the king was just another landowner. Right. And uh, everybody belonged to these these uh, court systems, which were called boars, and it was voluntary. You. You joined it or you didn't, but I can tell you if you didn't, you were now. Each one was essentially its own court system, and the king, the judge, whoever it was that laid down the the rulings, um, they didn't enforce the rulings. You did. If he told, if someone murdered your brother, and you went to the judge and you had a trial, and uh, the the judge says, yeah, he's guilty of murdering your brother, and I, they basically turned him over to you. You could kill him. You could do whatever you want. You owned him at that point. Mm-hmm. So a lot of, in a lot of cases, if you, a lot of people didn't have the stomach for killing someone themselves, and they'd say, you killed my brother, so you're taking his place. Now get to work on the farm. <laughs> and that's well, what that's, happened. Well, that's a reparation at least. You know, That's sorely lacking mm-hmm. in democracies. I mean, somebody kills or kills somebody, he's just locked up and he becomes a, a parasite on the taxpayers. Like any insult to injury. Yep. Yeah. So so essentially essentially under the those Anglo that Anglo Saxon system, uh 
you had maximum freedom, and you were responsible for uh, abiding to, by the law, and the people were responsible for enforcing the sentences themselves. Uh, and I, I, I can't think of a much more libertarian setup than that. How about um, early colonial America? Do you guys think that was a pretty good experiment uh, or pretty close to libertarianism? I, I, um, I do because if you look at the people, for instance, uh, and this is this is America in a nutshell. The early, especially pre seventeen seventy six, uh, was they came over in the Mayflower. They had a document that was actually written out and signed by hand uh, by some of the the main members on the Mayflower, the, the and it said, you know, we don't have a government, so we're all agreeing right now that we're all going to. This is our this is our agreement. This is our covenant. We're a government of ourselves now. We all enter into this agreement of our own free will, and then they all signed it. And when they dropped off on the land, they picked their leader, and they all understood that they had voluntarily agreed to join this this governing body, this council, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And that's pretty much how it worked everywhere. Um I think that that there was it was extremely libertarian, extremely, and um, even if you look at, for instance, pre-Constitution United States, that is the closest that I think will ever come to anarcho-capitalism. If you view each state in itself as almost like a a business, a company. Well, you know, until uh, the Civil War, I'm pretty sure the average American had like zero contact with the federal government aside from the post office until the 1860s. That's how, you know, you know, this is well beyond the colonial times, even until the, um, until Lincoln's war that, uh, the average American, his only contact with a federal agent would be with the post postal carrier. Right. I mean, <laughs> and then, you know, early America was very religious. Go ahead, David. Yeah. There was a, a big issue with, uh, Lysander Spooner competing with the with the postal office too. It was, it's oh, that's of, right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, people were Wait, people were very. What, go ahead, David. I'm sorry. <laughs> I guess I guess he's kind of like the uh, the um, post office is kind of like the Federal Reserve back then. <laughs> well, you know, ultimately, well, you think about it, they want to c- control communication. That's what the government does: movement and communication. And the post office is how you communicated back then. Yeah. Well, you you know the thing is is that if you look at you mentioned the early early settlers, the colonies, and so on, uh, is very religious. So you talk to people now today, and they say, oh yeah, you got to keep church and state separate. Can't can't let them get mixed up in each other. Church and state got to keep them separate. Um, and, and I can understand a certain amount of that. The idea, not necessarily to keep church and state separate, but to keep to uh, keep to allow people to worship without interference, however they wish to do it, I'm fine with that. Um, but the United States, pre pre United States, the colonies and so on, they're very very religious, all of them. And some of them, there were even some theocracies in place in some of the what we have now as states, but were colonies back then. So when people say, uh, when someone says, you know, the United States, this, this Society, this country was built on religion. It absolutely is 100% correct. 
And I think what you see is the more the United States secularizes, the more it looks like Europe, European society in that sense, in many ways, the less people seem to have. So individual freedom uh, to live your life. And so uh, I, I think it's interesting, you know, because a lot, of, a lot of the people that came were not necessarily Protestant. There were a lot of Catholics that came to the United States early on. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, do you do you, uh, you you asked me about that, Tony? So, what are your thoughts on on pre pre constitutional America and and well, freedom and religion? Yeah, well, I think um, I think there was higher levels of freedom under the Articles of Confederation, but um, even with the Constitution, I, I, again, until the mid 19th century, I think most Americans had a, a high level of personal freedom. I mean, we did have the problem with slavery, of course. Um, <laughs> so that's, that's certainly a fly in the ointment. Yeah. But uh, uh, the average American who was not, who was a free man, and, uh, you know, of course, there were free blacks, uh, enjoyed a high level of freedom. I agree. I agree. I- I, uh, one of the things I will say about the Catholic Church is that it's it's definitely a lot different than some of the other churches when it comes to being forward thinking. Now, I, you know, we hear a lot of stories. Oh, yeah, you know, they they attack Copernicus and you know the Inquisition. You always hear about that stuff. But you're talking people people act like that happened you know 20 years ago. Now that, that happened 500. five six. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> five hundred six hundred years ago, right? That probably yeah probably yeah five hundred years ago, and they act like yeah, it was and they start look at the evil church yeah and and and, and, and the um, whole thing about um, Galileo, he mm-hmm. he was a uh, rabble rouser. He was like your Christopher Hitchens back then. <laughs> no, uh, okay. Yeah, he was. He was he was a rabble rouser though. He he was um he's also kind of arrogant and um he, he, the fellow scientists didn't like him. He's kind of an ordinary sort. Mm-hmm. He had a daughter well, yeah, which, what Go ahead. Yeah. People realize that, but Galileo had a daughter who was a nun. Oh, okay. Okay, it doesn't it, – it, well, back then, I mean, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, he wasn't exactly really poor. I mean, most of the people who had the kind of knowledge he did, and so it came either from very wealthy merchant families, which were the only non-aristocratic families that were allowed to really do anything of any worth, or he came from an aristocratic family. It's just that's how it was back then. And most of the aristocratic families had some members in the church because it was viewed as a good move on their part because it gave them you know, friends inside the church. Um, but but if you look at that, you know, like for instance, we talk about the Inquisition. David and I had a discussion about that, and, and he kind of pointed some things out to me I hadn't really thought about before. Uh, David, you you pointed out to me that, that you know people always bring up the Inquisition. They act like that the Catholic Church killed millions of people or hundreds of thousands of people. They were just putting people to death left and right and torturing you know half the Europe's population. And and I'm not saying it's good. I'm saying that I'm not saying it wasn't horrible, but you know, twelve or thirteen hundred people over a period of, of a century probably is not really the same picture 
that you get painted when most people have a tendency to talk about it as though it were, you know, a, a pre a Holocaust on par with Hitler before Hitler, you know. So, David, it, it, that, you ever notice that when people talk about the Inquisition, how they talk about it as though the Catholic Church just murdered hundreds of thousands of people? They didn't, and it, it's based in your uh, schooling and your pseudo-history that they teach um and at universities that they teach that um, that millions of people died during the Inquisition and they suffered uh, horrible things. You were much safer in a the Catholic Inquisition court than you were in a secular, uh, like a uh, Spanish state court. Okay, uh, that's, they a, did, that's a nice, the, that's interesting point. They did. Yeah, if, if, um, if you guys ever want to go on YouTube, there was a 50, 45 or 50 minute video. It was um, put out on the BBC in 1995 about the Inquisition, and they really run circles around the black legends um, surrounding the, the Inquisition. It was what popular culture has uh, grossly exaggerated the the, um, the amount of killing and torture and so on and so forth. Yeah. So, David, you're saying you're safer in the Spanish courts, and, and you were saying you're going on to say something else. What, what were you saying? It was the death penalty in the Spanish courts, state courts, and the, in the uh, uh, Catholic um, Inquisition courts. Uh, they didn't. They didn't really do that. The Torquemada, a monk, he. He went against the authority of the church and did it on his own and went around um, killing people, a few people, I think. And mm-hmm. other and than other than that, they 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 went with an inquisition. You were in there for three minutes, and you were put. Uh, uh, they did many different types of uh, torture methods, but they put you in for three minutes, and that was it. See, see, I think that that's, that's pretty funny, you know. So so we talk about the Catholic, you start bringing up the Inquisition, and the church held us back, and you know, they did all this stuff to try and hurt, but what people don't realize is, is that if it weren't for the Catholic Church, there wouldn't have been any universities, and there wouldn't have been any learning at all. Uh, the Catholic Church has saved uh, Western culture by saving all of the, the books and the knowledge, the scrolls, the works that they could find, chopping them over to languages that could be read and passed on. And, and realistically, if you look at the churches, almost every single one of them that, that is more than three or four hundred, but 300 or so to 400, really 300 or so years old, every one of them used to be a Catholic school, if it's not still. But really... The Catholic Church is the only thing that helped pull Europe out of the Dark Ages and into the High Middle Ages. So so I, I really think that it gets a bad rap for a lot of that stuff. And if you look at it now, it's very forward-thinking. For instance, this church canon, a lot of people don't realize evolution is church canon. And what I think is ironic and in some cases hilarious is that secular evolutionists, are very disturbed by the fact that the Catholic Church has accepted evolution. Many of them are. 
Are you with us still, Tony? Yeah, I'm still here listening. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, you, it's well, they don't do have to. About that? Go ahead, David. Uh, yeah, they don't have those uh, phony fundamentalist ideas. <laughs> I was gonna. No, <laughs> the yeah. earth is. The earth is. <laughs> and the anti-science position. The earth is ten thousand years old. <laughs> yeah, and the, and and God buried dinosaur bones to trick us. <laughs> so. You know, I I don't. I mean, it's fine if, if people want to believe that. That's fine, but. Well, uh, I mean, so you know, Tony, so what do you what do you what do you think about that stuff? Well, you know, it, it, evolution. I, you know, I believed in evolution for many years. I mean, I still think there's something to it, but I mean, there are flaws in the in the theory of evolution. That it doesn't mean you believe the Earth is ten thousand years old or anything. Well, of course. But, uh, I know he, one of you guys has ever read Fred Reed. He writes for Lou Rockwell sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. He's a, he's an agnostic. He's written several really interesting essays where. He just rips on evolutionary theory left and right. Um, he thinks it's it's uh, it's got a lot of flaws, and uh, people who believe in it, he says, it's funny. Like some scientists believe in it so blindly, they, it's a religion to them. This is a guy who's an agnostic saying this. Well, I I don't I don't disagree with that. I I think that but but the situation with science, science as a discipline. Which really, science is really just a method. It's not a religion. We cannot view it like, for instance, we view the church. It's not this overall encompassing uh, uh, religious experience. Science is a method that we apply to learning things, to trying to discover knowledge. And we have to understand that at any given time, we don't know it. Uh, evolution. There, there are, we, we went through several phases, several different paradigms. With, for instance, evolution, with physics, with astro- astronomy, um, and it all changes because there's always questions that we can't answer. And, and when you hit a certain point where you can't answer certain questions, uh, you have a paradigm shift. Somebody has to come up with a new new hypothesis, and you begin all over again. And eventually, that new hypothesis becomes a theory, and then it replaces the old the old theory, the old paradigm. Sure. And I think uh, what we, what we find is that with evolution, it can't answer everything, and that's of course the case all through history, with science. Period. It, it hits those walls. So so, I think that evolution in general gets it right. I, I think that overall, however, it it has its moments. <laughs> it has some serious flaws, and it is, after all, just a theory. It is a theory, so it's subject to change. And you could wake up tomorrow, and some massive change could a discovery could completely change the way we look at at the whole the whole thing again. But right now, it's the best thing we've got. What I I think my point is is that I think that what I what's important for me is that the Catholic Church realizes this sort of thing. They're forward-thinking enough to understand that you know this the, these these things change, but they're able to accept those those things like evolution that are out there and exist. Uh, and knowing that it's the best thing we have going, I think what disturbs many of the hardcore secular evolutionists are though is that um, the fact the idea that is 
is in control of evolution, for instance, which I, I think is very similar to the church's position, is that this is, you know, something. That, this is how God has, has chosen to work with us. So, I don't know. I, my my point is though is that the church is not backward. It's not backward. People still have this image of the church from five or six hundred years ago, and they still th- they think the church is trying to hold up science in every opportunity it gets. And that it's like, for instance, the evangelical fundamentalist Protestants out there who believe that, as David said, the earth is 10,000 years old. And that uh, dinosaur bones were planted to trick us by God. And that the earth is flat because, you know. Because reasons. There are people who believe that stuff. Because what, David? Because they'll quote Miss Strawman scripture passage. Right, right. So, but I, your your point is well taken, Tony. You know, about yeah, he, the flaws um, he talks about intelligent design. I mean, it's interesting because he's agnostic, but um, one of his essays, he talks mm-hmm. about the design of an eye, like a giraffe eye. And he seems to know quite a mm-hmm. bit about it for some reason. And he, he just talks about, you, all, it's so intricate. It's hard to believe, even given eons of time, that this organ, this eye, could have developed by accident. You know, uh, he draws the analogy of, you know, you're, you're hiking through uh, the rainforest around the Amazon, and, and all there is, they're just trees and wild animals all over the place. And all of a sudden, near the Amazon, you see like a hut and a makeshift boat, and usually you, you assume that somebody put that together, you know. It's, it didn't just happen mm-hmm. by accident. And that's the analogy he draws with, like, the, the, the eye of a giraffe. It's, it's, there's just so many points to it, and one relies on the other so much, the, and, and that wouldn't be there if, if there weren't a third factor that... Um, there has to be something putting everything together, some force. I don't know. I, I just, um, well, and that's the church's position that that evolution is essentially God's method of of doing things. So, if you take it from that perspective, um, it is still intelligent design. It's mm-hmm. just that evolution is the method that He's chosen to do the designing. And, and I'm I'm good with that. Um, I don't know if you are familiar with uh, William Lane Craig, um, a, one of the probably maybe in my opinion the best apologist out there, uh, best person in college, Christian apologetics, or, or or even theist apologetics, just period. Uh, also, mm-hmm. David is very has always mentioned Peter Kreeft. David, you you find him to be very compelling in some of his arguments. Oh yes. Yes, he's uh he's very good. He's a um uh Catholic uh apologist and he uh he's pretty good at coming up with very uh good arguments, solid arguments for the existence of God and theological arguments and um he's yeah, he's got mm-hmm. some good insight and good perspective on things. A pretty strong perspective on right. this. He's, for me, he's kind of like uh, what uh, Hoppe is to libertarianism. For me, Kreeft is to um, is from that for the church. Uh, 
when it comes to philosophy. Uh, okay. It, it'd be cool to meet that guy. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I, I think he is really fantastic. I've listened to quite a bit of his stuff. He's, he's got, um, and he's, he's fairly libertarian minded, by the way, as well. Yeah, yeah, he's a uh, he's quite a uh, wordsmith, and he's 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 very charismatic too. And right, and you also mentioned the word uh, apologetics. Some of the mm-hmm. some people out there might think you mean you're that you're saying you're sorry for something. Uh, <laughs> can, you, can you explain to the audience uh, what? What the definition of apologetics and the maybe the etymology of it, Clifton? Well, um, you you have to look at the fact that um, it's always meant um, from from a Christian perspective, it, it's a defense. You're defending yourself, and really, I think the first case of apologetics was not Christian. It was it was you, you can read about it. It's Socrates. It's, it's so it's um, Socratic. So his defense of himself uh, during his trial. Uh, but uh, apologetics is essentially defense, a defense of your position, a defense of your views. You're far, it's far from an apology, though uh, to a certain extent apology is somewhat derived from the concept of apologetics because you're defending yourself. I apologize. Um, this happened to me, and that's why I made the mis- this mistake. So even then, you're in a certain amount of you're, – you're explaining as to why your mistake wasn't as bad as it looks because even though it was a mistake, you're still – you know, there's a reason why you made that mistake, and that, and, and that reason was somehow out of your control. And it's kind of like um, the same thing with, with – uh, um, uh, if you look at these different uh, – Theologians and philosophers over the over the many many years, they they are explaining why their particular position is the right position and why the other positions are wrong. So when we say apologetics, we're talking about a defense of your of your position, not not a, a you know down on the knee begging for forgiveness apology. And it, it that, comes from the the etymology is from the Greek word. Um, Apologia, which which does mean speak in defense. It's yeah, and it That's comes correct. from and it comes from the Greek tradition of um, I think the first uh, what you would call people who made defense of other persons back then. I think it had started in the Greek tra- Greek tradition was uh, attorneys. I think. With, yes. Yes. Uh, well, the thing about it is, is that um, uh, one of the things that that they would teach you in, in ancient Greeks, they would teach you is um, uh, apologetics was actually a branch of rhetoric. So you you would end up in front of you know a group of people, for instance, in in near the polis in Athens, and you would be trying to convince the crowd, the people there on hand, to vote your way. Or, for like I mentioned, uh, Socrates defending himself during his trial. So lot, lots of things going on there. So uh, it's it's really was a branch of of rhetoric, mm-hmm. uh, which is an uh, the art of speaking. Rhetoric is the art of speaking. Now, uh, um, you know, and and there's a long history of of rhetorical skill being associated with 
the church and uh and Augustine was known for being extremely pervasive or persuasive uh during during uh debate over which way the church should take or not take uh you know for instance they were discussing whether certain people should allow to be priests or not and Augustine who was a you know a major church father uh, was very clear that uh, did not feel that people who had a sordid past should be kept from becoming priests. Uh, and he brought up his own background and that uh, if they were to use those types of standards, then he would not be able to to serve the church any longer. And I think that when people saw that, you know, that they – they uh, kind of sort of sided with him, but essentially that was apologetics. He was defending his position. He was defending his his own um, his own position as a bishop in the church. So, is that is that answer what you were looking for, David? Yes. Okay. So, Tony, where is your position on the church and apologetics? Um, because you can actually go get a degree. We, they call it apologetics. Philosophy calls it rhetoric. What is your position on uh, apologetics in the church? Are you, are you familiar with uh, major apologists for the church? Uh, you may have lost him. Um, well, so so really – uh, if you look back, I, I think what we've we've talked a lot about in this this particular episode is that uh, guys like Tom Woods, Lou Rockwell, who are Catholics, uh, Tony, who's on us on the show with us today, David, myself, we're all Catholics, um, we're all theists, so to speak. Um, we we are we are as libertarian as anybody, and anybody who starts out that. Uh, we we answer to a dictator in the sky. Uh, they don't have a clue. They're they're totally uneducated. They don't realize that that eighty percent of libertarian philosophy comes straight out of the Catholic uh, the Catholic uh, tradition. Wouldn't you agree, David? Yes. The uh... um, you there, David? Yes. Uh... Oh, okay. Well, so uh, I guess uh, Tony, did we lose you? Are you still there? That we did. It looks like we did. So listen, um, do you have anything that you want to add here at the close, David? Before we before we uh, roll it up for the night. Yeah, uh, Saint. I was looking up uh, Saint Augustine, and mm-hmm. and for. It recalled what I remembered from him. St. Augustine was saying that um, society only needs to prevent coercion from happening to man. Uh, No, uh, man's not going to save themselves from this world. Uh, No man is going to be able to... uh, That's God's job. Cannot save the soul from sin. Um, humanity, which is sinful in nature, uh, cannot magically adopt the role of legislator and perfect other humans in that role while also having a sinful nature. 
uh, it it cannot create a good society is probably a, most likely a decent summary of uh, Augustine's work. Okay. Okay. Well, I, I think I think he is uh, definitely a huge, a huge. Um, uh, uh, hugely more important than many people realize, uh, as far as the, the libertarian tradition of the church. Uh, Aquinas, obviously, the father of natural law theory. Um, he is uh, where it started. A lot of people want to go back to Aristotle. That's not where it started. I'm going to throw that out there right now. And uh, Aristotle uh, is a early. He laid out an early proto uh, concept, which eventually led to natural law theory. But really, natural law theory started with Thomas Aquinas, which is, is I mean, that's the first real natural law theory that we know of. Um, Aquinas, then, therefore, if you look at it from that perspective, um, that's, you know, that that's really the, at the heart and root of much of, of libertarianism is self-ownership and the idea of natural law theory. Wouldn't you agree, David? Yes, I think that... Uh... St. Thomas Aquinas said um, when he said human government is derived from divine government um, one of the quotes people quote him on it sometimes is that he wasn't saying that um, government should intervene all the time and I think it's quite the contrary he was against what you would call this uh, deus machiana government where it uh, constantly intervenes and acts as the hand of God. He didn't believe that at all. Right. Um, and I, and I think that that's, that's interesting. You know, the, the, that's a good point. It, the, the whole thing that you have to look at with, with Aquinas is that he, he created natural law theory. Um, uh, he re- further refined and probably uh, perfected just war, the just war, uh, Policy of the church. He he did a his contributions are massive, uh, and a lot of these things that came out of, of Aquinas went straight into the church. The church did adopt Aquinas as their official uh, theologian. He, his theology and philosophy is at the heart and core of the Catholic Church. So uh, and so this was passed down. If you're a libertarian, you are at least in part, if not more than you realize, Thomist. So you are are adhering to a quite a lot of Thomas Aquinas philosophy, Catholic philosophy. If you're a libertarian, whether you're an, it doesn't matter if you're an atheist or you're a theist. If you're a libertarian, you're at least partially a Thomist, and I think that you and I can both agree on that, can't we, David? Oh yes, uh, and that would make. Uh... Most libertarians also uh, Aristotelian too, though, since he was influenced it, well, by. Well, it would. It would. I, th- I think that's a good point. They're very Arist- more Aristotelian. I'd say in in political theory, at least, definitely more Aristotelian than than they are Platonic or or any other thing else. So that's a nice. I, that's I a think, good. I think. Uh, but I also think Aristotle was uh, very spiritual in his thinking. He was a he was a pagan, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Um, now, 
that's the thing about uh, I guess we're kind of going further down this rabbit hole here, but that was the thing about the Greek philosophers. When you look at Greek philosophy, we seem to forget that uh, these people uh, were pagans, and even the ones who didn't believe in the gods were still influenced by other people who did believe in pagan gods and pagan worship. Um, so, uh, it's, and one area of pagan worship that had a big influence on on uh, Greek philosophy and concepts, which was then shoehorned into uh, Christianity, was Orpheism. So that that whole concept, uh, if you go and look at it, it's, it's amazing how. Uh, much it looks like, uh, at least from a very um, general perspective, like what you have in Christianity. So, so you have to understand that that um, maybe the Greeks came to certain concepts uh, through reason uh, that the Catholics and the Christians came to by way of faith, and. It, if you're a Catholic, if you're a Christian, you have to you have to believe that that's not necessarily by accident. That there's very good likelihood that you know God worked through the Greeks to give them you know they have these ideas and these concepts and they match up perfectly with Christianity. They combined into what we have now as modern Christianity. Prior to that, I mean, you see a lot of stuff like Gnosticism and Manichaeism. Which you and I, David, were talking about. Augustine, before he became a Christian, a, a real Christian, was a Manichaean, a Gnostic, what we call a Gnostic nowadays, um, which is a whole different can of worms in itself, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the Demiurge in some Gnostic uh, philosophy, I wouldn't call it a theology, it's not really a religion. Um in Gnostic philosophy, uh, Demiurge, the uh, creator, God creator of matter, uh, is a, is more of a demigod, and the pure spiritual god, which is knowledge, Sophia, which is has characteristics of a woman, uh, created uh, knowledge and spirit, and right. And that is yeah, basis yeah. In, that has, that's basis in Greek philo- philosophical thinking. It does, and they also believe that that uh, God that created the world that we live on was a demiurge, uh, essentially yeah. a, an evil god, and that the god that that we talk about, the good god, was more of an overall universal god that was out there. Sort of, um, if you look at the Platonic world of forms. The good God lives in the world of forms, and the bad God lives in the world we live in. So that is very Platonic because of Platonic's idealism, yes. Uh, yes. Plato's idealism. So yes, it's very um, it's a very Platonist uh, theory, the Gnostic theories, and uh, they get pretty dark in some of them. And what they found at Nag Hammadi when they found those. Um, Tech, those Gnostic texts, they yeah, they found uh, they found other ones that were about um, one of them was about oh, I know. Uh, about Jesus going and uh, telling the 
just touching people and saying you're dead and saying stuff like that. And then he, you're a corpse, you're a corpse. And then, uh, Mary tells him to raise him back up. It's just bizarre stories. <laughs> right. Right. Well, I know that, um, uh, some of the stuff that you will, will read as well. Uh, there have been uh, claims that Judas uh, was teaching that that uh, originally that uh, Jesus was a, was essentially teaching Gnostic, something closer to what the Gnostics believe. And also, there are a, the Christians that you find that were out east that went to India under Thomas, uh, that that particular apostle. Those Christians seem to be have somewhat different beliefs as well from from some of the other uh, churches that were set up by the different apostles, which in some regards had certain elements in them that kind of resembled uh, a few ideas that were Gnostic sounding. Um, but, uh, I I think that that um, the Catholic Church as a whole has has always been. Uh, a check on government power. And even now that the church sort of nudges and pushes at governments and, and talks about governments that did the wrong thing. And if you look at what Pope John Paul II did in Poland and in Czechoslovakia, and you look at, at throughout history, you know, the popes have opposed certain types of bad things. The church is opposed to certain bad groups. And I, and I think that in general, the church has always been about freedom. I think that the the church mostly, maybe not 2000 or, or maybe not 1200 years ago, maybe back then there were a lot of, there's a lot of corruption in the church because there's a lot of power, but the idealistic uh, uh, that the church followed, the idea, the ideal, the ideology was always been really more or less about uh, human liberation and, and freedom. So I don't, I don't see the church as being bad for people i think that uh, it's very libertarian minded just my take yeah it's um it was saint paul that said it was for freedom that christ set us free right right uh, and, and and one guy judas i re- looked up judas the galilean taught that uh uh taxation was no better introduction than slavery uh it was an any inviolable attachment to liberty. Yeah. Well, I I I think it is. I mean, I think I agree with that. I don't see any reason to disagree unless I'm just sort of negative, you know, about the whole concept in general, right? Mhm. Um, but you know, it's funny when we came down to the end of this, we, we thought we were going to bring it to a close like 10, 15 minutes ago. And, and as usual, I mean, you and I do this in, in normal conversations outside of our radio show. Uh, we, we end up, uh, talking about things like this and, and of course we found another 15 minutes worth of time for me to run my motor mouth. Um, <laughs> Uh, any any last words there, David? Before we before we bring this to a close for the night. Um, if you're interested in um, uh, looking into uh, 
Catholicism at all. If you're even if you're an atheist, there's apologetics websites. There's um, guys like Peter Crift. There's guys like Scott Hahn, and there's guys uh, like like the guy you mentioned. Um, what was his name again? You're at, uh, William 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 Lane yeah. Craig. William Lane Craig. Mm-hmm. And uh, for uh, Catholics who uh, who might might be interested out there that listen to this uh, podcast at all, uh, read look up Tom Woods, look up Hans Hermann, and look up Murray Rothbard and Ludwig von Mises. Uh, Lou Rockwell. Lou, yeah. Lou Rockwell. He's a good one. So. All right. Well, uh, it's been enjoyable. I've enjoyed our conversation this evening, David. Yep. So, uh, let's, uh, I guess it's time to wrap the show. Uh, good night, everybody. And we'll be back tomorrow night. We're going to have a very special episode. We are... Uh, honored that we will be having uh, Stefan Kinsella on the show with us as a guest and um, pretty excited actually to discuss argumentation ethics with us I think it's going to be a great show and uh, he's you know Stefan's a very very smart guy and I'm sure we're going to have a lot to learn from him tomorrow night would you don't you think so David yes it's exciting and it's a bit like it's a bit overwhelming. <laughs> haven't, yeah. haven't so yeah. So soon, you know, come come up, come back and and listen to us tomorrow night uh, as we we bring uh, Stefan Kinsella on. All right. Good night, everybody. Good night, David. <laughs>